So I'm curious, how many were blessed by that worship this morning, man? It was, it was good, right on. No, you should clap because I'm here to wreck all of that and grind those gears. Um, yeah, okay, so pop, pop quiz here, question. Uh, as you've read the Bible, many of you have read the Bible. Uh, as you read the Bible, how many of you have ever run across something where you go, that's confusing? A few. How many of you ever read something where you went, that's downright troubling? That's today, all right? So I, I'm giving you fair warning, all right? Like, uh, like, I would love to avoid it. Like, there's probably some of us that go, can we just skip those crazy sections? Well, where we're at today in our particular series, it demands that we look into things that we would probably prefer not to look into, not to wrestle with, not to struggle through. But one of the things about our church is that we don't want to just avoid the tough stuff. We'd rather face the tough stuff head on, raise the questions, speculate about some things, try to figure it out, and in the process of that, figure out the best way to honor Jesus, see Jesus in the midst of all of that stuff. And so today is one of those days. So I'm sure some people are turning right now to their partner, their friend, their spouse, whatever, saying, we should have stayed home and just got ready for the Super Bowl party later. I get you, I feel you, uh, but we're going to have to journey in this. And I'll tell you just in a moment, a couple of things of transparency that I'm going to pray will get underway. But in some transparency here, uh, just so you know, maybe if you're new with us today, great to have you with us. Oh, this will be fun. Um, but so we're in the book of Deuteronomy, which that word means second law, but in the Hebrew tradition, it just means the words or the things or the stuff of Moses. That's what it means. And I've titled today, uh, crazy stuff my Moses says. And, and I don't mean that disrespectfully at all. I really don't. I mean to kind of soften the blow because we're going to look at probably eight of some of the toughest chapters of the entire scripture. And for me, this has been one of those areas in my own journey and my own questions and my own struggles and my philosophical mind that I've had to wrestle through for a long time. And so what you're being given today is kind of my process, my journey, and it's unresolved, it's incomplete, it has holes in it. There's other ways to approach this. I want to be clear about all of that, that we're dealing with an ancient document that is sometimes hard for us to figure out, especially in the modern world. It's their mail, we're reading their mail, and we're trying to understand how it applies to us. And so when you get into the thick, thick weeds, hard stuff, uh, we all come with hopefully a level of humility. And, and that's kind of my heart today. You're getting my own kind of case building. And again, it's very human as we go. I acknowledge that, but I want to honor Jesus above all else, and that's the heart behind it. And so that's going to be we approach it today, and there's a lot. Like I said, it, you might at some point go, can I just get on my phone and just look at TikToks? I get it. I, I wouldn't even fault you, because some of this is going to get deep at times. But I'm hoping that uh, you will at least honor me in this process, and you'll understand maybe how I try to wrestle through some of these tough things. So with all of that prefaced, we do have an app with notes, lots of notes today, lots of verses today uh, you can follow along with. But I'm going to go ahead and pray and settle our hearts, and we're just going to get right underway. So Jesus, I thank you so much for the grace and love you show us. I thank you for hard things. And I thank you that you've given us brains to wrestle with hard things instead of just going, oh, it is what it is. I'm going to move on. We struggle. We wrestle. It's why your nation is called Wrestles with God. You want us to wrestle. And so I pray that we are faithful wrestlers who Jesus in the end, our goal is you. And so we look to you and seek you this day in your good and perfect name. Amen. 
All right, so Deuteronomy, we said it it's comprised of an opener, three speeches, and a conclusion. Speech one was just, here's where we've come from. Speech two, we've been in for a while, and I noted last week that it's really kind of concentric circles. There's a structure. So the very first thing was their focus, and it's all about the Ten Commandments and the pledge to love the Lord their God. So that's like the center point. And then it goes out to their worship. It builds off of that. And then from there, it builds into their leadership. But now we're getting into this complicated phase of laws. And from chapter 19 to chapter 26, this is all sorts of case law. Because we've noted that Israel is a new Eden. It is a nation for the nations. Moses is engaged in nation building. And he's seeking to unpack some really important principles. Now when it comes to the Ten Commandments, we noted that they're very short there is no building out what is the consequence for violating these things, and they're written by the hand of God. So God himself, it's the only time God pens something in all of the scriptures. But then you get to this section of Deuteronomy, and it's uh, more the hand of Moses, and there are much longer ideas, and they're very common to daily affairs and problems, and he unpacks some of the issues of violation. And so if I was to take all of those different instructions, they look like the Jeopardy board, all right? Pretty much like that. It's like, I will take uh, sexuality laws and premarital rape for 100. You know, it's like, it, it's, you're like, that's a lot. And already you see the subject matter and you're like, should we have stayed home and done our Super Bowl party? Right? So, like Ophelia, right? So, within that section, there is over 50 laws total or regulations. 50 instructions in these eight chapters. And when you get into these, uh, some of them are like, no big deal, right? And others, you're going to be like, huh, this is interesting. So I'm going to start reading some of these laws so you get a sense of it. Some are just curious. You read it, and you're like, I don't know what to do with that. Like, you must not plow with an ox and a donkey harnessed together. Okay. And at first, it seems weird, but I'm like, imagine the Iditarod if some guy was like, I'm going to go and put a dog and a pony. I'm going to put a dog and a bobcat. I would pay money to watch that. But it just, you're like, okay, that's kind of curious. Or you can't wear clothing that's both wool and linen woven together. Right now, all of you REI people wearing your cotton blends and stuff like that, you are sinners in the eyes of Moses. You can't do that. Repent, take off, go the other way, right? How about this? Some are just common sense, right? So, for example, he says if you're building a house, you must build a railing around the edge of the flat roof. That way, somebody doesn't fall off and you're guilty of murder. Right now, Osha's like, thank you, Moses. We love this. Some are humanitarian. If you're harvesting your crops or you're dealing with your olive orchards or you're reaping your grapes, he says you go through once, but don't go through a second time. You leave that for the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. In fact, there's several instructions that are just around like a mandated welfare system for the less kind of, you know, kind of likely to have jobs or opportunities or options or whatever else. You also see many times that there's almost this type of like affirmative action to counterbalance how the rich and powerful may take advantage of the poor and the weak. And so you see reinforcements on social equity. He says, true justice must be given to the foreigner living among you as well as the orphan. And don't take a widow's garment as kind of like collateral on a loan. Don't do that. Some are like a precursor to the Securities and Exchange Commission. They regulate commerce. He says, you must always use accurate scales when you weigh out merchandise. You must use full and honest measures. All who cheat with dishonest weights and measures are detestable in the Lord's sight. So you're like, okay, this is just about fairness in the marketplace. Others, frankly, are about hygiene, and I find funny, all right? Because they're designed to regulate public works. 
He says, you must have a designated area outside of the camp where you can go relieve yourself. Each of you must have a spade as a part of your equipment. Whenever you relieve yourself, dig a hole with the spade and cover the excrement. The camp must be holy for the Lord your God moves around in your camp to protect you and to defeat your enemies. What he's saying is God doesn't want to step in your poop. So as he's walking about, I know we're like, that's so weird, but this is the way they understood it. And it would be impure and clean and it would be nasty to boot. So cover your poo, right? Makes sense. Others are deathly serious commands because they're penal. He says, if anyone kidnaps a fellow Israelite and treats him as a slave or sells him, the kidnapper must die. So it's just a lot of regulation. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But then as you keep reading, some are weird. If a man's testicles are crushed or his penis is cut off, he may not be admitted into the assembly of the Lord. Right now you're like, this is really uncomfortable. I guess that's another penal law in this code too, but it's a different kind. (laughs) Everybody online. All right. So I didn't write it. I'm just the mailman. I deliver the mail. I just read what it says, right? Others are extreme, right? If two Israelite men get into a fight and the wife of one tries to rescue her husband by grabbing the testicles of the other man, you must cut off her hand and show her no pity. Now, I've watched a lot of episodes of Cops. I've seen many times where the wife jumps in to rescue the husband from the police officers. I've never seen once where the guy's like, get him by the go-go's, get him by the go-go. I've never seen that move. But apparently in Israel, it might've been a thing. I don't know. Your husband's getting beat up, you jump in, and what's the result? Even if your husband was the one getting jumped, you as the wife, you're going to lose a hand. And when they do this, there is no pity. You know, that's, that's extreme. But then, and, and I say this with, with pause, uh, some are, are troubling. Right? They're troubling. And, and in this, we, we would rather skip them. Honestly, we'd rather that we had this other book, this silent secret sealed book that we put in a vault someplace. That's the stuff we just don't want to talk about, right? But here's the thing. Are any of you doing read the Bible in a year? It's coming, right? Because Deuteronomy's coming. It might be March. I'm not sure exactly what, by the time you get to that, but it's coming. And it's so hard when you hit those places because you're like, I'm going to do my devotion today. I'm going to read my quiet time. And you're reading through and you're like, oh, Provide for widows and orphans. I love that. Care for the, the foreigner and the stranger and the oppressed. You're like, that's beautiful. And then you come across this thing that says, don't hurt the trees. And you're like, it's very environmental of you. And then you come across, utterly annihilate all the Amalekites. And you're like, not my memory verse for the day. What do I do? Troubling. For example, as you approach a town to attack it, you must first offer the people terms for peace. Great, what are terms for peace? All the people inside will serve you in forced labor. So this is Moses writing to the people. Here is a law that we are prescribing. But if they refuse to make peace and prepare to fight, you must attack the town. So imagine if this was modern. Here they come to your town. Bow or die. Bow or be enslaved. Like just that alone sounds really, really tricky. The other thing you have to understand when you look at the book of Leviticus chapter 25 is if you were a foreigner that was invaded by Israel and brought into slavery, it was in fact chattel slavery. You were just a product. You were a possession. 
and your family was slaves for generations, you would just pass down those slaves from Israelite to Israelite. So the Israelites, they couldn't have slaves more than seven years. You had to free your fellow Israelite. But if you're a non-Israelite conquered by the Israelites, this prescribed thing of Moses says, you're just indentured slaves for generation upon generation. So Israelites are released, non-Israelites, they're kept. So let's say they go, no, we're not going to be indentured servants. He says, use your sword to kill every man in the town, but you must keep for yourselves all the women and children and livestock and other plunder. You may enjoy the plunder of your enemies that the Lord your God has given to you. So in other words, this isn't just like, all right, Israel, I need you to go execute justice because they're pagan and it's a real grievous thing. Sin is destructive. So go in with sober, somber hearts, do this thing and show my justice. No, he says, when you win, enjoy the spoils. Enjoy these enslaved people. Enjoy their stuff. Take their homes. Enjoy their homes. Like in a modern mind, we, we shouldn't just go, oh, whatever. We should go like, no, that, I don't know what to do with all of that. And if you're an Amalekite or you're a Canaanite, there the code is you utterly destroy them. Men, women, children, livestock, everything. Total annihilation clauses. Now, in some of these contexts... It wouldn't be a total annihilation. We see in the book of uh, Numbers chapter 31 that there was a thing that says, uh, kill everybody but the virgin girls, right? Got that radio going, love it. Broke the tension there. (laughs) Thank you. Here's what it says in that instance in Deuteronomy 21. When you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them as captives and you see among them a captive that is a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife, you will bring her into your home, and she shall shave her head and cut her nails. And she shall take off her clothes in which she was captured and remain in your house and lament her father and mother for a full month. Her family was killed by your people. Your territory was uh, you know, just kind of absorbed by the people that just took over, and you're to mourn a full month. But then after that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, or you shall not treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. That's heavy. That's sobering, right? Because realistically, what what is going to be the outcome of that woman? She's damaged goods in a very rigid and patriarchal society. She's probably just going to become a sex worker if she's removed from that context. Here's another one. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and they've tried to discipline and he won't listen, they go to the elders and they say, man, he's stubborn and rebellious. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Basically, he's 20 years old. He likes to eat bad and he likes his Mai Tais. Like, this is the problem. And he won't listen. What do we do? It says, then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. You shall purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear. Parent Apparently, gentle parenting was not in place yet in that part of human history. And yet, here's another. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, and he seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, the man who lay with her will give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall become his wife because he has violated her. But he may not divorce her. Now, if she was married or engaged, uh, this guy would be under the same pile of rocks as, like, drunky glutton boy. But because she's not, she becomes his wife. And he can't divorce her, contrary to Deuteronomy 24. This is, in most cases, you can divorce your wife if you just don't find something good in her. But here, he's locked in, right? 
So it's kind of a different prescription. And to be open with you, there are more sections like this in Exodus 21 and 22. You find it in Leviticus 15 through 25. Numbers 31, you find more things like this. And so it's all troubling, and then it capstones with the very end of the chapter of chapter 26 and says, today the Lord your God has commanded you to obey all these decrees and regulations. So be careful to obey them wholeheartedly. Now, to be clear, that final statement is in relationship to the entire speech. So it starts in chapter 5, moves all the way to this moment here. But you read all of that, you hear all of that, and you go, I don't know what to do with it. I go, it's really hard. Let's go ahead and pray. Now, I, so, <laughs> I would love to eject at this point, but no. I, I know it's uncomfortable. I do. I, I know right now you're like, if you brought a friend, you're like, oh my gosh, really, this was the day. This was the day. I hope you see that we take the scripture seriously. Right? That we're taking these difficult things seriously. I I did this not simply to bring you into my misery because I wanted company. I I also do this because honestly, we've probably all met people that go, you know what? Hey, faith seems cool. Spirituality is awesome. But there's stuff in the Bible. And what do you do with this, 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 and this? And we have to wrestle with that and try to have some kind of answer for these problems. Now I'm going to bring you into my processing. So to be clear, I do this a lot. Bible's there. Matt's way over here. Trying to process as a human being as best as he can with the Holy Spirit and the tools and the gifts and everything else, but still realizing that this is complicated. How do I wrestle with this? And what are some of the things that I battle through in this? If I was to simplify the issue, I think it cuts along two lines. First of all, here's a confession, and I think this is airtight biblical. I think this is exactly true. I believe, confessed, cry out that Jesus is the full declaration of the Father. Jesus is the Word incarnate. Jesus is the clearest display of the heart of God. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? So there is no clearer way to understand God when looking at the person of Jesus. So then where I wrestle is I look at these direct commands of Moses, and I'm trying to ponder, is God speaking through Moses, or is Moses speaking of some other accord because he's commissioned by God? I wrestle with that, and here's where I have to struggle. If Jesus is God, then Jesus is the same God in the Old Testament that's leading them through the wilderness. And Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 10. He says Jesus was the rock that the water came from. Jesus was leading them through the wilderness. So I have to put on the lips of Jesus the same man that said, let the little children come to me. The same God that says, bring the little ones. is saying, kill all those little ones. Like this is the moral conundrum that I've wrestled with for 25 years. My master's thesis in philosophy was on part of this problem, right? And and so that's kind of the first trick. I'm like, how do I reconcile Jesus and his beauty and his love and his grace to women that were mistreated and maligned and care for prostitutes and care for the children and care for the outsider? And then I reconcile that with what I just read in the book of Deuteronomy, right? It's just, I, I can't make them fit. And then the other part of this is that while uh, I understand debates of postmodern philosophy and there's actually parts of it that I actually I think it makes sense, I am opposed to relativism. I'm opposed to relativism. In other words, I don't think we should look at morals and say they're relative based on conditions. And I believe that's true for people and I actually believe that's true for God too. Because I believe, 
and I think I could build this case pretty well. I believe that all true morality flows from the character of God, the heart of God. It's his nature. When we talk about ethics and morals, and we talk about something transcendent, you think about C.S. Lewis making the argument of transcendent, we have a sense of good and we have a sense of evil. That flows not from God just simply giving rules, it flows from who he is. And so if God says, this is morality, but now I'm going to amend morality and something that looks immoral is moral as long as I've told you to do the immoral thing, I go, I don't know how to register that or put that together. That makes no sense to me because it's a violation of his moral character. So that's the other place that I battle, right? This is why we see in theology, uh, God cannot lie. God cannot die. God cannot make a burrito so hot he can't eat it. Like there's all these things. And the point we're making there, as soon as there's something that violates his character, it's impossible for him to do it because he's too steady within himself, right? And so I guess you could say what I'm ultimately, ultimately struggling with in my own person and humanly and incompletely when I look at these codes of Moses is the moral problem of these laws. It's just the moral problem of these laws, right? In other words, I'm asking the question, are these precise instructions coming from the lips of God as the moral character of God? Is that what it is? Or are these precise instructions coming from Moses as a man of his time to whom God has delegated this responsibility? Thus, what comes from God is the authorization of Moses, not necessarily these words of instruction. Now, I want to be really clear and stop you for a second. I'm not talking about the Ten Commandments. I'm not talking about the covenant that God makes with Abraham and with Moses. I'm not talking. What we're in in chapter 19 to 26 is case laws about nation building and daily problems, right? And so it's like, in some ways, it's like God's like, what I'm doing is I'm delegating you, Moses, to be my guy. And I'm saying, go do that. And whatever you say, I'm behind you because I've delegated you to do this. And you're a man of your time with the conditions that you have, the problems that you face, the issues that are going to before the people, and you have to navigate those things. Now, I'm sure some of you are looking at these options, and you go, well, I see the dilemma of the first one, especially when I'm putting on the lips of Jesus things like, you know, go ahead and take her into your home and shave her head and clip her nail. Like, we can't put that on Jesus' lips. That feels really, ugh, right? But you look at the second one, you go, I don't know how to deal with that either. But I, I see so often what God does tend to do is authorize people who are people, humans, to be his delegated authority. And in doing that, he's like, hey, man, I'm, I'm sending them on my behalf. And so listen to them. But they're still human in that process. We see this with Jesus when he sends out his disciples. He says, anyone who receives you receives me. And anyone who receives me receives the Father who sent me. Now, that group of yahoos, they made all sorts of mistakes. But he's like, hey, man, I've, I've authorized you. You're my extension, even in your humanness at times. Same thing comes up in Matthew chapter 16. He says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. He handed the keys to a guy that five minutes earlier, he said, get behind me, Satan. Now here's the keys. And when you read the story after this, these guys, you know, they were, they were doing their best with what they had, but they were all too human in the process too, right? I think about my own position Right? So I have this gift of teaching, and it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do, though, as one who speaks the very words of God. 
Right? Now, this is before anybody had a circulating Bible. Uh, you know, they had the old Hebrew scriptures and maybe a little bit of circulating stuff. But the point is like, hey, if God has commissioned you to this and he's given you the Holy Spirit, then go speak as though you're speaking God's words. There's this sense of delegation, which is why then in Hebrews 13, it says, hey, churches, people, submit to your leaders because they give an account to God. There's this idea again of kind of delegated authority. And so when I look at all of this, I just kind of see it's a little bit like when a president sends an ambassador. He's like, whatever he says, it's what I say. Uh, Whatever he does, it's what I do. There's just that kind of extension. And I'm just saying, this is speculatory on this, but I'm saying maybe that's a little bit of what's happening in the case law section of Deuteronomy. Now, there's other ways to solve this. There are. I would encourage you to go look. But I, I admit I default to Jesus is the lens by which I read the scriptures and Jesus is the way in which I understand God. And I'd rather use that mechanism to look at these hard things than any other type of mechanism. There's other ways, but for me, this is the one that at least in my conscience, I go, I'm, I'm, I'm centering it in the person of Jesus. I'm gonna put it kind of there, right? Now, I've wrestled with this for 19 years and guess what? I'm not finished yet and I have no more to add to that. <laughs> I'm wrestling I'm battling, I'm doing exactly what Israel is, wrestles with God, I wrestle with God. But there is another layer to this, all right? I'm gonna try to move fast through this, but I'm hoping you can catch it. And, and the layer here is the overall intent of these instructions from like 19 to 26 and some of the others, right? In other words, we have to look and go, is the overall intent rules to keep as absolute laws or is the intent codes to consult as general guidelines Or is the intent problems to solve for wisdom formation? Because when you read Hebrew scholars and rabbis, oh, this is the debate, man. For 3,000 years, they've been having this debate. Now, number one is pretty clear. And number one, or A, is kind of like the one that the, the, the Jewish leaders were totally engaged in in Jesus' day. Like, that was their jam. And you may not realize this, but there are some in Christian nationalist circles that are called dominion theologians. And their heart and hope is we can get America back to the Mosaic law. They've openly said, yes, we would execute for this and this and this. If we can get power, we will do Moses again because that's holy and good. So there's some that go, that's exactly where we should go. We should just pull all this stuff back out of the mouthballs and use it all over again. Other... Jewish scholars and rabbis say it's, no, it's codes to consult. It's like Captain Barbosa and pirates. It's parlay, right? They're more like guidelines than rules. But then there's some that say, you know what? It's a bit like working algebra, which I know that sounds weird. But there's a great book. I would encourage anybody who's ever interested to read The Lost World of the Torah, all right? By uh, Tremper Longman, he's out of Wheaton College. He's the one that really turned me on to this idea But he's like, those 50-some-odd instructions, uh, these are not so much like your job is to learn the 50 algebra problems, so when you face any one of those 50 problems, you can do that problem. It's like, no, the reason you do many algebra problems is so that you garner a wisdom and an understanding of all algebra, so when you face any problem, you can bring that to bear on the problem. So this is all practice ideas to get you thinking, get you processing, get you developing wisdom. And then you have this ability to work within the margins and figure out things in a whole new way. And so the idea then under that idea is not so much this perfect adherence to every little regulation. Make sure you shave her head, clip her nails, take off her clothes and leave her for 30 days. It's not that. But is there a deeper wisdom that we should process through this? 
So the goal is the spirit of the law, the forest, not so much maybe the letter of the law in the trees. Now the question here, very fair, is is there a way we could even begin to demonstrate this or prove this inside the Bible? And I think there might be, and I think it comes with the person of Jesus himself. Jesus may be kind of the test to this theory. And so I want to take us down the road of Jesus and the Torah, kind of a case study, which is why and how he kind of renegotiates Moses. Now we know there's some kind of difference because even in the very first chapter of John's gospel, he says the word who is Jesus became human and made his home among us. And he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And from his abundance, we've all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. But God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. And so there is a difference. Even later, Paul will come to the conclusion, the law leads to death. Jesus leads to life. They have functions, but they're, they're different. But for now, we simply acknowledge that Jesus, who is God, is positioned differently in purpose in relationship to the law of Moses. But then that raises the question, does Jesus stand against the law of Moses? He is, is he in contest with, competition with, trying to overturn this whole thing? Well, in Matthew 5, he begins his great opus, the Sermon on the Mount. He comes 40 days out of the wilderness, just like the nation of Israel comes 40 years out of the wilderness. He goes onto a mountain, just like Moses goes onto a mountain. Moses receives law, Jesus gives law, and he's giving it to a new people of God who are going to do everything upside down and backwards. Radically different, right? In fact, even the way he opens the sermon, the Beatitudes, any listener is going to be like, whoa, wait a minute. Because Moses says in Deuteronomy 28, blessed are these things. And you're blessed if you're rich. You're blessed if you're abundant. You're blessed if everything's good. You're blessed if you're happy. That's Deuteronomy 28. And you're cursed though if you're poor and you're mourning and you're persecuted. And now Jesus is going to come in and just flip all of that. So the, the listener's like, whoa, wait, he's, he's already messing with stuff. But then he wants to calm things down. He says, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Tuck that in the back of your head. To accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least of the commandments and teach others to do the same, you will call called least in the kingdom of heaven. But if anyone obeys God's laws and teaches them, they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now you could read that and from that say it seems clear that Jesus is letter of the law guy. That Jesus would say we should execute the adulterers. That we should kill our enemies. That we should pluck out eyes and cut off hands and take life for life. Right? You could come to that conclusion on so many things, but as soon as you do, you'd be like, that does not seem like what I read. So what do I do with all of this? Well, Jesus sort of anticipates this, which is why I think the key phrases in this is back in verse 17 and 18, to accomplish their purpose, right? Until the purpose is achieved. And it comes back to those three areas. Is it accomplished by keeping its rules Absolutely. Is it accomplished by being a code of consultation for guidelines or is it accomplished by letting it be this idea of solving problems to gain wisdom to face things? Which one is it? Well, I actually think it's the third personally and here's why. No sooner does Jesus say this 
that he begins to say, and here's the purpose of the law. And what he does is he says, you've heard it was said, but now I say to you. And he goes through really familiar things. He talks about murder and adultery, divorce, oaths, revenge, and love. But he reframes them all. Now, to be really clear, on some of these, he's dealing with how they've made applications from the Mosaic law. So they're not laws themselves and Moses, they're applications of it. But others ones are direct to what is found in the law of Moses. For example, on divorce, right? The law of Moses says, you know, if a husband finds something in his wife that's unpleasant, he can divorce her. Just give her a certificate of divorce and then be on your merry way. Jesus is going to roll in and say, well, when Moses wrote that, that wasn't so you had to get out of marriage free card. He wrote that because you're sinful. He was regulating your sin with a thing that's actually sin. Divorcing your wife is a sin. He regulates your sin by making sure you don't have more sin, but that's really what it was. He goes, you've missed the point there. Or on oaths, in Deuteronomy 6, it says, you're supposed to swear by the name of your Lord when you're a Jew. And, and now Jesus says, well, if you swear by anything and not just let your yes be yes and your no be no, he goes, that's of evil. We're like, but Moses, they were supposed to swear by God. He goes, right, I'm telling you not to do that. Revenge, that's a given. We were just reading about what do you do with your enemies? Utterly annihilate them. Now Jesus is like, ah, here's what I want you to do with retaliation. Don't do that stuff. In fact, you want to love them, do good to them, bless them. I mean, it's pretty wild that Jesus is like stepping in and he's directly countering the religious dogma and absolute rule keeping that they were so locked into by saying, here's a new way, which is a wiser way, a more God-hearted way of doing life. He goes further, though, kind of with this, as you have done, let me show you how I do. And he displayed things throughout his earthly ministry. For example, Jesus unlawfully touches the impure in Matthew, Mark, and Luke without any follow-up of purity rituals. So like in the law of Moses, you don't touch a leper. He touches a leper. You don't touch a dead body. He touches a dead body. You don't touch a woman with a blood flow. She touches him, but he doesn't rebuke her. He praises her for that. He lets a prostitute anoint his feet. And he never said, no, I got to go do a ritual of cleansing or a seven-day whatever. He just, he's like, no, I'm showing something deeper, more profound, more powerful. Another example is that Jesus does and condones unlawful activity on the Sabbath in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Like there's this time he heals this man. And after he heals the man on the Sabbath, he says, rise up, take your mat, and go. Jeremiah is clear, you carry nothing, on the Sabbath. You get carry, you caught carrying a bundle of wood, you get executed. But, but he does this. And then he mentions this thing about David. He says, remember when David goes in and he eats the showbread that's unlawful to eat and he feeds his men? He goes, that was a right thing. Yes, it's contrary to what Moses wrote, but that's the right thing. He loves his people, his men so much. He feeds them with this thing. And that is the noble act. Also, I just mentioned that Jesus upends divorce law in Matthew 19, contrary to Deuteronomy 24. He's like, you missed the point. He also upends, like I said earlier, taking oaths in God's name in Matthew 5, contrary to Deuteronomy 6. So he just keeps doing this. But I believe as he's doing it, he's not saying, you know what, I'm anti-law. What he's doing is saying, I'm showing you the purpose. I'm achieving the purpose of the law. It's not about this raw execution of all these details that you're focused on. These are tools to a greater wisdom that shows the love and kingdom of God. And he's moving it forward in radical ways. Again, not through the obvious letter, but through the counterintuitive spirit of the law. Here's my favorite, and I know I'm running on time here but it's when Jesus upends the execution for adultery. Oh, this is the best one, man. This gives me goosebumps thinking about it, all right? 
So we're picking up the scene in the middle. Keep that in mind. It's in the middle, right? Because it's a larger story. But in John chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back at the temple, and a crowd soon gathered and sat, and he taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And they put her in front of the crowd and they said, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. So there's witnesses. There's no speculation. Is this just a rigged thing? Is this a setup? Is there no proof? No, they're like in the act, eyeballs on. This is a problem, right? So what do you say? And then I love John's like added commentary. They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him, Right? So why they were doing it is clear, right? They're trying to trap him. And we're going to see in, in a minute kind of why that happened, right? There's a, there's a catalyst to all of that. But what we know is that she's in fact committed adultery. There is no, nobody debates that. She doesn't, Jesus doesn't, the leaders don't, nobody debates that. And when it comes to the law of Moses, this is not gray, Deuteronomy 22, 22, if a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. In this way, you will purge Israel from such evil. So what you have in this scene is like this idea of an unstoppable force meeting an immovable object. Like, what is Jesus going to do? Because we're not getting into the weeds of obscurity on the law. This happens This is what you must do. Not could do, might do, if you want to do, you must. That's what it is. So it begs the question, what's Jesus going to do? Is he going to give a bunch of spin? Is he going to backpedal? Is he going to let her be the casualty for keeping a good PR? What's he going to do? It says, Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. And then they keep demanding, what are you going to do about Moses? What are you going to do about Moses? What are you going to do about Moses? He says something, but then he stoops back down. And he wrote again in the dust. Now there is all kinds of speculation about what he wrote. And can I just help you? That's adventures and missing the point. A hundred percent. What he's writing is not the critical thing. You're going to see that in a minute. But I want to take a step back. Right? I said we came to the middle of the story. Pull back. Let's see the whole picture of the story. Because the story begins the day before. And technically, the story begins at the beginning of the week before the day before this, right? So it's a whole week thing. So you go to the beginning of John chapter 7, and you find it's the third festival of the Israelites. It's the Feast of Booths, right? Remember they have three in Deuteronomy? And so this is the third one. And this one's really special because it remembers the time when God led the people out of Egypt toward New Eden, and they dwelled with God in tabernacles or booths or tents or whatever else for that 40-year journey. And the big idea there is God took care of you for 40 years. In particular, he brought water from a rock that kept you alive. And so they celebrate that. This idea there was this rock somehow that traveled with them and gave them water perpetually for that entire time. Super wild, right? And like I told you earlier, Paul says, well, that was Jesus. So there's a typology there. So they're celebrating this remembrance of God's freedom and bringing liberty to them and celebrating the fact that God gave them water in the desert and everything else. But during that week of that celebration, tensions keep rising between religion and Jesus. He keeps saying things and doing things. They're just irking a man. They're getting sick and tired of it. But then, right, this is so cool, on the final day, 
As the ceremony is reaching its climax, Jesus shouted as he stood to the crowd and he said, anyone who is thirsty, come to me. And anyone who believes in me, come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Right? So they're thinking about all that water from the rock, that water from the rock, that water from the rock. And now he stands up and says, I'm the rock. I'm the water you all are thinking about. I'm the deeper reserve that you desire. And religion just goes, he's claiming this thing. He says he's the water instead of God being the provider of the water. So he says that that evening, the next day he's back at the temple. They find this woman caught in adultery. They bring her to Jesus. What are you going to do? And now he stoops down and he's writing in the dust. You have a showdown. Jesus versus Moses, mercy versus law, kindness versus religion, water versus dust. And like I said, it's not what he's writing, it's that he's writing in the dust. Because just a few hundred years before, there was another prophet that went unglued at religion. And here's what he said, it's Jeremiah. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. That is rad. That is one of my favorite things right there. Because you put it all together. He said, anyone who believes in me, I'm living water. And religion looks at that and says, screw you, man. We don't want you. We don't need you. We don't seek you. You're a liar. You're a cheat. You're a thief. You violate Moses. You're the problem. And so we've got to come up with a way to trap him. Let's get this lady that clearly is breaking the law of Moses. There is no question about what should happen by the end of this day. Let's get her to trap him And in this, he says, okay, here's the real deal. You're rejecting water. You're written in the dust. It's over for you. It's done. Your hearts are too hard. You've missed the story too greatly. But they keep demanding an answer. They're not catching it. Not yet. So he says, all right, anyone who has never sinned, throw the first stone. That seems to be somehow how it starts to lock in. And there's a ton that's happening here I can't touch on, but a couple of things that stand out. First of all, he's just point blank saying, for all of your law keeping, you're God forsaking. So your precision with the law of Moses just reveals your corruption of heart, right? You think you bring life, you actually bring death because you're rejecting the radical river of life, right? You're rejecting it because Jesus came with life for unfailing love and faithfulness, right? In this, there's also this clear condemnation of religious law-keeping. And I think it's interesting here, because keep in mind that, yes, it is sinister, it is disingenuous. Like, they're doing this to trap him. Let's also be clear, she's guilty and deserves death. Both can be true, right? So in this very clever way, he's kind of bringing this up. But then he does something really wild, and he does a slight sidestep when it comes to this mosaic code. Because here's the edict, basically. Um, If this is found out, you execute that person. And it doesn't say, provided everybody in town is sinless. Provided everybody has no problems at all. Only those without sin can cast the stones in the camp. It never says that. Quite contrary. It assumes everybody's incomplete, but this is a vile thing in the nation. This is an evil in the land. You must do this thing. So Jesus, though, calls their bluff, right? And he refuses to fulfill this unambiguous letter of the law. 
and kind of moves in this other direction. And when he does it, he's revealing the universal wisdom of the spirit of the law. You know what the universal wisdom of the spirit of the law is? Y'all suck. Every human being. When we enter into law, when we try to keep it, we sin. When we violate it, we sin. We're awesome at sin. And Jesus is now on the spot kind of using it in this judo Jesus way. Using their momentum against them. Like, you guys don't see that everybody's poo stinks at the same time in this cluster? It's all the same problem, right? But then here's the part that I love, man. This is so cool to me. He uses the moment not to say, you're all sinners and deserving of my wrath. He uses it as a a poignant moment to say, you're all sinners. And that's why I came with grace. You're all a mess. And that's why as this woman lays in the dust, she's about to partake of living water. And you guys reject living water, and now you're in the dust. But I am here to bring grace to all. It's so cool. Now, technically, you know what Jesus could have done? I'm the sinless one. I'm going to take you all down with rocks, and then I'll finish with her. He could have done that, right? He, if he's coming to truly uphold the law of Moses in a very particular way, he should have just had daily stonings every day in Jerusalem for the whole three-year ministry. Because he'd be like, you're a sinner and I'm worthy to kill. Like he could, but he doesn't do. He's doing like this opposite thing, right? It's so cool because I see him accomplishing the purpose, the essence and the heart of the law. And it seems to have struck a chord because it says, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Gets crazier still. It says, then Jesus stood up again and he said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Did not even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And he said, neither do I. Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now again, accusers caught her in the very act. So Moses is clear she's guilty. And based on that, their job was to condemn her, according to Moses. They should have stoned her that day. And if not them, then at least Jesus, because he was the only sinless one in the crowd, but they were forsaking their requirement to the law. So weirdly enough, they're, they're now seeing like, I guess we're just not going to do law. Which then ends the story with the law of Moses versus the love of Christ and a woman in the middle. What will happen next, right? And I love what he's really saying is, yeah, Moses condemns you. But I don't. I don't. Because I'm here to do the purpose of the law. Not the letter of the law, the purpose of the law. And, and if you read the story, you never see the woman say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, I'm an adulteress. Jesus, I'm worthy of this death. Now, I'm sure she thought it, felt it. We don't ever read that in the story. What we almost see is a proactive absolution on the part of Jesus. Like he just knows, and he's like, you gotta know. I see your worth. I see your value. I see your beauty. I see your image, my image in you. I don't condemn you. But then he kind of pushes her into greater freedom by saying, hey, go and sin no more. That isn't like a scolding. Like, hey, I just saved your butt. Don't ever do it again. It's, listen, I've just brought you into life. You've just been nourished by water. I don't want you to be burdened by the things of missing the mark of God and how it hurts our soul and hurts the world around us. I am liberating you. Go and do things different. Don't be held in bondage any longer. He turns the law of Moses on its head, not violating it as a sin, but illuminating its deeper intent. 
He's loving God and loving those who God loves in wisdom and kindness and grace. And what I love about this is there was a dude named Saul that couldn't stand who Jesus was because Jesus constantly was missing the mark as he thought on the Moses code. But one day Jesus kicks in his door and rescues him by grace. And Paul suddenly sees it all very different. And so our reading today, I end with this. Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandments say, you must not commit adultery or murder or steal or covet. But all of this stuff, all the commands rolled together come down to one thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not, does not do wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. You want to know the purpose that he came to accomplish? He's going to love. He's going to outlove, radically love, crazy love people like us. Messy, incomplete, broken, trying to figure it out. Like, that's the deeper beauty. This word is Deuteronomy, real life, three diagnostic questions. Am I more of a letter of the law Christian or a spirit of the law Christian? Who am I? Do I tend to look at the world through the eyes of Moses or through the eyes of Jesus? And number three is love, the greatest debt. I seek to owe God and neighbor and enemy alike. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, hard stuff. Hard stuff. Incomplete. My approach, I confess, there's probably many holes, many broken parts, many, hmm. But we wrestle with you. We don't wrestle against you. We wrestle with you in the right way, the good way, the beautiful way. Now, there may be some in this room or watching online, you're not a follower of Jesus, and for whatever reason today, you're like, that made enough sense that I want Jesus. I want the guy that steps in and pulls me out of the dust and gives me water. If that's you, that's a prayer for you today. You say, Jesus, I need you to come into my life. I know that life is better with you. Even when it's bad, it's good because you're with me and you give me life. You make that your prayer in your way. He hears you, brings you into the family. And we want to know that you pray, Jesus, I, I have gone my own way, done my own thing. I've sinned. You died for me, rose again to give me life. We want to know if you made that your prayer. There'll be a number on the screen. When you open your eyes, there'll be a tile on our app that you can text to and let us know. That'd be awesome. For the rest of us, Jesus, help us as we wrestle with the hardest stuff in your word to not wrestle against you, but to wrestle in love with you, to wrestle and contend for you because we want to know you better and represent you in a more well-rounded way in our world. Help us to be faithful to the fact that the most beautiful demonstration of love ever shown by God was you coming into the world and being a servant for us, being a sacrifice for us, and then staying with us to move us on to maturity. We praise you this day. We seek you. We love you. We need you. Strengthen your people to be faithful in the purpose of accomplishing your calling. We thank you, Jesus, in your name.